Hey there, this is Benjamin, and welcome to Affable Chat. This is part two of our episode on David Foster Wallace's mammoth work, Infinite Jest. If you haven't listened to part one of this episode, then you're going to want to go back and listen to that first so you can get the full context. But if you've already done that, then please enjoy part two of our discussion on David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest. All right, and we're back discussing more infinite jest. Joey, tell us about these themes. <laughs> okay, so first off, before we get to the themes, I want to tell you some stuff that really annoys me. One of the things is the uh, there's this exposition dump that happens, uh, I think, around the f- uh, between the 10 and 15 hour mark. Um, so up to this point, right, I've completely relied on context. And actually, not that's not even true. I actually went to Wikipedia a couple times to try to understand a little bit about what I'm reading. At first, I thought that this was just going to be a, an anthology of different people. Um, like you were going to jump between different people for the entire book, and it was just going to be they were slowly you're slowly making this world one character at a time, one scene at a time. But, uh, but then reading Wikipedia, I realized that that wasn't true and that they were going to return to these other characters who just gonna you know kind of do it in a roundabout way um so i i the wikipedia stuff really did help me understand a little bit about what i was reading um but before that i was so disoriented i had no idea what was important what to pay attention to or anything but about uh 10 or 15 between 10 and 15 hours in uh there is a movie that's produced by mario incandenza which is a movie that stars a bunch of puppets that essentially explains everything in incredible detail that has happened in the world for the last like you know seven or eight years um and it's all it's like a political it's just a political documentary with puppets essentially um and he goes through all the events of what happens and how subsidized time came about and how johnny gentle got elected and how the great concavity appeared and everything like that and I and I'm like, what is this? And where was this at the beginning of the book? Right? <laughs> if you're gonna exposition dump, do it when it's useful. Don't do it when I've already had to survive on context uh, up to this point. You know, uh, at this point, learning all this stuff, it's like, oh, well, I already know all this because I had to learn it somehow because you wouldn't tell me before. So I, uh, yeah, it, it was it was interesting, but it was like, what is the point of this? And of course, like you know, it's told through this medium of a puppet show like a a film puppet show right but that uh, as with a lot of this book that loses a lot of context pretty quickly as uh wallace kind of gets into the details of things right at a certain point you know an hour into listening about what this what is going on um or what happened you sort of kind of forget that it was a puppet show in the first place and you just think of it as being the politics of the era and sure you know uh maybe uh uh Mario is taking a certain political position on that, but that doesn't mean he's not nuanced, right? It just means he's biased. So like that, like the infinite amount of detail that's put into this isn't necessarily something that's conducive to a puppet show. And a similar thing happens with uh, the fall of the cable cabal, uh, which is uh, a, you're going to hate this, a QAnon reference. Um, it's a... <laughs> The, the the broadcast television collapses, uh, and I'll explain a little bit about what that's like, what that happens in, in my prediction section. Um, but this whole section is explained through a essay that Hal writes in seventh grade, 
and you read Hao's essay and the teacher often remarks like wow he has a really like interesting perspective for a seventh grader it's like yeah because this wasn't written by a seventh grader and in no world was this written with the words that are used in this essay used by a seventh grader even one that is as brilliant as Hao. so I, I hate that. It's like, oh, you're just going to explain everything, right? But not when it's useful to me. You're not going to have a preference that, a preference, or like something like that, you know, that leads in to um, a prelude that leads, leads into this book to kind of give me some context of what I'm about to understand. You'll add that in the middle after I've already had to deal with the fact that you weren't going to explain it. So either explain it or don't explain it. Don't do this halfway thing where you, uh, where you, you set me up so like, okay, I have to survive on very little information. Uh, con every little bit of context matters. And then just say, oh, never mind. I'm going to explain everything. Yeah, that sounds, <laughs> I mean, that sounds frustrating. Yes. These other things that annoy me, um, I, I've already talked about a lot, but that was one specific one that uh, that just really got under my skin. Are we, so we're going to dive into that a little bit later, though, because that does sound interesting, the fall of cable oh, networks. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that, that is really interesting. We'll, we'll talk about it in a minute. But first, I want to talk about some of the themes while I still have you. Okay, so one of the major themes in this book is perception. Hal's eventual state is foreshadowed throughout the book. He says that when his father was alive, he was always acted as if he couldn't understand anything Hal said. Uh, Hal's father treated him like a mute. There, this is a really this is really confusing at the beginning of the book. You hear Hal say what he wants to say clearly and slowly, but the characters in the book do not hear that. So you have to figure out: is Hal unable to speak, or are the characters in the story unable to hear him? That's an important distinction. There's a period where Don Gately can't speak e either. After he gets shot, he lays in the hospital with a tube down his throat. He is awake and aware, but he can't talk. People come in and visit him, and they tell him all sorts of crazy stories. He can't interpret, uh, interrupt or interject or respond. He basically just has to lay there. It's really frustrating for him, but it allows these other characters to sort of monologue, and you learn a lot about them. His silence becomes a sort of open door for people to come in and confess to him. He, they perceive him as listening rapt, even when he doesn't care at all about their stories. Mario, likewise, is often misunderstood or misunderstands. There is this great story about one of the teachers at ETA that gets into an argument with his brother about the inherent morality of people. To prove his point, this guy pretends to be homeless and stands in the street. Instead of asking for money, though, he just says, touch me, please touch me. He thinks that if he can get someone to show that amount of humanity, it will be proof that he is right. People are inherently good. People are, of course, repulsed by him and ignore him. Weirdly, he ends up making quite a bit of money this way, and the other homeless people start adopting his strategy. They all begin begging people, touch me, just touch me. This further complicates things because people interpret this as, please, I need money. No one ever touches him, and he begins to despair. The spell is broken by Mario. As he's leaving the store, these homeless guys are out that these guys homeless guys are outside of, he hears them say, touch me, touch me, and so he goes down the line and shakes each of their hands. This is one of my favorite stories in the book. It shows a lot about perception. People who see a homeless person begging won't listen to what's coming out of their mouth. They will simply interpret anything they say as, I need money. For whatever reason, maybe it was just the tone of his voice or the way he looked, this guy had more luck with his approach, but he wasn't being listened to, so he was actually failing. To the people walking down the street putting change in cups, and to the homeless people who rely, rely on that change, touch me means, I need money. To them, this is the correct interpretation. When Mario comes along, he interprets the request literally, which is only funny because no one else did. And yet, by interpreting the request correctly, he's really reaching to the fundamental request and fulfills the requirement to prove that people are inherently good. 
<laughs> wow. So, yeah, it's really cool. Mario complains to his mother that people are often shallow and that they don't ever want to talk about anything real. I think this falls into the same category. When you look at Mario, you don't expect him to be perceptive or bright. So no matter what he says, you hear what you want to hear. And sincerity is often perceived as naivety. So his directness just plays into your perception that he doesn't really know what he's saying, but the fact is you are the one misinterpreting. This struggle between sincerity and cynicism is another deeply connected theme in the novel, which I will get to in just a moment. First, the whole book is written from multiple points of view, and Wallace writes in a way that is meant to be the inner thoughts of the characters. At one point, he even switches from third person to first person for Hal once Hal stops doing drugs and starts to retreat inward. This is interesting because the characters use words incorrectly, which is sometimes corrected in the endnotes, or Wallace will add in filler words like like into the third person parts of the story. He even writes a couple of sections in some sort of AAVE, which I found very uncomfortable. <laughs> I think this fails overall, though. Uh, again, it's ambitious, but the styles are not distinct enough for me to tell one from another without context. Wallace's vocabulary is also a hurdle here. He shows he sometimes substitutes words for words that sound similar, which is how someone who doesn't know that word might use it. That's cool, but it's juxtaposed. Juxtaposed. Damn it. <laughs> juxtaposed. But juxtaposed. Thank you. <laughs> that's that's cool, but it's juxtaposed to even more extravagant vocabulary that I also wouldn't expect that person to know. He picks and chooses, and I like the idea, but the execution is just not there for me. So again, like this, this whole thing is you see things from different perspectives, right? Everything and everything is about perception, um, and so these people interpret different words uh, and how, through different their own perceptions. However, uh, they think uh, in this extreme vocabulary that that Wallace writes in and he acts as if okay this person would say this thing if they knew that that was the word they were they wanted to say like if they knew this word existed this is what they would say but they don't but he 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 puts that right next to these things that are um where they just use the word incorrectly or use a different word incorrectly, right? So he's really picking and choosing and he's saying, okay, I think they would know this word or they would say this word in this context, but they don't know what this word is. So I think it'd be funny to add that in there. And it's just, uh, I don't know. It, 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 it brings me out of the book because I'm suddenly thinking about what he's right, how he's writing it and not how these characters think. Yeah. It feels like it's hard to have both things like to write as eloquently as David Foster Wallace is capable of writing, but also right. simulating some sort of uh, level of intelligence that is different between different characters. Right. Which is yeah, exactly. And I think it's really ambitious and I like the idea of it, but I just don't feel like it's done to the extent that I was satisfied with it. And maybe I'm just not interpreting it that way. Maybe it, it, the, the differences between characters are subtle, but, uh, but distinct and I'm just not picking up on it. Um, but it wasn't clear on my read through. So back to cynicism and sincerity. I have a quote for this and Benjamin, here is your magnum opus. <laughs> Please. Here read. we go. One of his troubles with his moms is the fact that Avril Incandenza believes she knows him inside and out as a human being and an eternally worthy one at that. When in fact, inside Hal, there is pretty much nothing at all he knows. His mom's, Avril, hears her own echoes inside him and thinks what she hears is him and this makes Hal feel the one thing he feels to the limit lately. He is lonely. It's of some interest 
that the lively arts of the millennial USA treat anhedonia and eternal emptiness as hip and cool. It's maybe the vestiges of the romantic glorification of Weltschmetz, which means world weariness or hip ennui. Maybe it's the fact that most of the arts here are produced by world-weary and sophisticated older people, and they are consumed by younger people who not only consume art, but study it for clues on how to be cool, hip. And keep in mind that for kids and younger people to be hip and cool is the same as to be admired and accepted and included, and so on alone. Forget so-called peer pressure. It's more like peer hunger. No? We enter a spiritual puberty where we snap to the fact that the great transcendent horror is loneliness. Excluded engagement in the self. Once we've hit this age, we will now give or take anything. Wear any mask to fit, be part of, not be alone. We young. The U.S. arts are our guide to inclusion, a how-to. We are shown how to fashion masks of ennui and jaded irony at a young age with the faces fickle enough to assume the shape of whatever it wears, and then it's stuck there. The weary cynicism that saves us from gooey sentiment and unsophisticated naivety. Sentiment equals naivety on this continent, at least, since the reconfiguration. One of the things sophisticated viewers always liked about J.O. Incandenza's The American Century as Seen Through a Brick is its unsubtle thesis that naivety is the last true terrible sin of the theology of the millennium of America. And since sin is the sort of thing that can be talked about only figuratively, it is natural that himself's dark little cartridge was mostly about a myth, namely that queerly persistent U.S. myth that cynicism and naivety are mutually exclusive. Hal, who's empty but not dumb, theorizes privately that what passes for hip cynical transcendence of sentiment is really some kind of fear of being really human. Since to be really human, at least as he conceptualizes it, is probably to be unavoidably sentimental and naive and goo-prone and generally pathetic, is to be in some basic interior way to be forever infantile, some sort of not-quite-right-looking infant dragging itself anaclytically around the map with big, wet eyes, froggy, soft skin, huge skull, gooey drool. One of the really American things about Hal, probably, is the way he despises what it is he is really lonely for. This hideous, internal self, incontent of sentiment and need, that pules and writhes just under the hip, empty mask, and hedonia. Great job, by the way. Um, Thanks. Yeah, that was, was a <laughs> lot a of big good, words in there. <laughs> that's a pretty good sample of what this book is like. 
Uh, so uh, obviously there's a lot going on here. It's a long quote, but first of all, this is uh, this is the equivalent of your mom saying, "Stop making that face, or it'll get stuck that way." <laughs> um, Wallace is suggesting here that you learn to be detached and aloof from American art, specifically television, and that you practice what that because you want to fit in. But that causes a contradiction because you never you can never admit that you need to be loved by others without breaking the mask that you don't need to be loved by others. Also present here is some sort of confirmation bias. Cynical people love to be told that cynicism is the best quality, best quality. And there is an implication that cynical people cannot be naive. However, Wallace in several ways disputes this idea. And he says in here uh, that queerly persistent U.S. myth that cynicism and naivety are mutually exclusive. That's something that is really going to stick with me for a long time, I think. Um, and it is persistent uh, throughout this book. The most notable of how uh, the most notable uh, refutation of this idea is how J.O. Incandenza attempts to go to AA, but can never get over the hill that Don Gately climbed. He is so stuck on the empty platitudes that he swears the whole thing off. Something similar happens to Hal when he tries to go to an NA meeting. AA in this story symbolizes how sincerity can conquer cynicism, even if that sincerity is fake. And I have another quote to demonstrate this. And maximally unironic. An ironist in a Boston AA meeting is a witch in church. Irony-free zone. Same with sly, disingenuous, manipulative pseudo-sincerity. Sincerity with an ulterior motive is something these tough, ravaged people know and fear. All of them trained to remember the coyly, sincere, ironic, self-presenting fortifications they had to construct in order to carry on out there under the ceaseless neon bottle. This doesn't mean you can't pay empty of hypocritical lip service, however. Paradoxically enough, the desperate, newly sober white flaggers are always encouraged to invoke and pay empty lip service to slogans they don't yet understand or believe. For example, easy does it, and turn it over, and one day at a time. It's called fake it till you make it itself, an oft-invoked slogan. This is probably the most... Uh... This passage specifically, but this idea is probably the most evocative for me. And the one big takeaway I'm going to take away from this book, um, Wallace mentions the dangers of irony several times. It's even hinted that Infinite Jest, the deadly movie, was made ironically. And here's another quote. So Jim took a failed piece and he told me it was too perfect to release. It would paralyze people. It was entirely clear that it was an ironic joke to me. This is a quote from Joelle, the most beautiful girl in the world, uh, the pea goat, they call her, the prettiest girl in the world uh, of all time, sorry. Um, the pea uh, goat? <laughs> yes. Uh, Joelle seems to think that Infinite Jest was made uh, as a joke, a joke about her. Um, it's like, oh, I'm going to create something. You're supposedly so beautiful. I'm going to create something that's so alluring that it causes people to go mad. Um this is essentially just Poe's law. You become what you pretend to be. At a certain distance, you making fun of something and someone just doing it are the same thing. And I have another quote here, uh, also centered around Joel. Even as an undergrad, Joel had been convinced that parodists were no better than camp followers in ironic masks. Satire is usually the work of people with nothing new themselves to say. 
So um, what's interesting, I think, about sincerity in this book and sentiment in this book is he says that it is um, it is extremely valuable and it's how you fight against cynicism and how you become something other than what Hal is, which is completely empty inside. Um, what, uh, I, what another thing that I really like about that is that there are truths in this world that are maddeningly simple. And those truths are espoused at AA meetings. Things like one day at a time or fake it till you make it. You know, these things are cliches and they seem so simple. But the truth is, the hardest truth to accept is that truth is easy to accept. There isn't some secret thing out there that you are missing. There isn't some secret uh, book you have to read and suddenly everything will make sense. The answers are right there in front of you. You are simply not accepting them. And that is um, a super powerful thing. And it, it what it does is it says engage with what's real to me, um, engage with the reality of the world. Um, what do you think about this? I think that's a great concept. I definitely back that idea that sincerity is worth you know, preserving or striving for uh, and, and kind of rejecting this idea of being too cool for everything. Or, exactly. Um, you know, like I, I think um, it's something that it's, it's it makes you vulnerable to try to be sincere, but it's totally worth it. And it uh, like on the other side, it's totally not worth it to become totally protected from any vulnerability by ironically uh, be, or being ironic about everything. And I don't I, think that actually happens. Like I, I'm going to get to that in a second, but simply being detached from everything and being cynical about everything only leaves you more vulnerable. It does not actually solve your problem. Okay. I don't I well but, I don't totally agree with his uh saying like satire is usually the work of people with nothing new themselves to say. Yeah. Uh, as a satire appreciator, I think satire <laughs> is hilarious. So average satire enjoyer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think satire is really funny and uh I like writing satire, so I don't fully agree with that. And obviously like the great the onion is is all satire and I love the onion. But um but I, I get what he's getting at here, which is more of people who are, you know, they detach themselves and make fun of things and uh, poke holes in things as opposed to unironically enjoying them. Sure. Uh, Cinema Sins is, a, is the example. Yes. Um, it's, I, I, yeah, I disagree with his take on satire as well. I think that satire serves an important purpose in our culture in that it flips the script on well-established norms. Um, it takes something that we accept as reality or accept as normal and we say well what if what if we're wrong about that and it, it takes a harder look at those things um some of the some of the best satire i think is that comes out of the superhero genre it's something that's been done to death every like uh, that formula is so well um established and some of the best superhero stuff that's coming out today is direct satire of that um and i think that that stuff is extremely valuable because it really makes you think hard about the stories that you um um, that you love. And uh, I, I think that's what that role serves. And I think that it requires an incredible amount of creativity because you have to break the mold um, that other people have set. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't really agree with that, but I understand the sentiment, I suppose, which is that um, simply being a critic uh, does not uh, get you very far. Right. And um, yeah, and, and actually unironically enjoying things like, or, or even just promoting ideas. Like while some people may say it's like oh this guy's a, a clown for being so like i don't know sincere mm -hmm. uh that it's actually worth doing exactly like that and that's the thing that's so funny right is that we value 
this cynicism, and yet it's the thing that's killing us. Um, it, we we've been taught that cynicism is the thing is the way to go, and yet it is the um, it is the thing that keeps us from connecting to other people. Even though by engaging in cynicism, we are really trying to engage with other people. So, Ironic. Very. Um, so this feeds into my personal theory of what happens to Hal, and I'm going to explain that now. So Hal is empty because nothing he does is truly his own. Tennis with his father's and his brother's dream, grammar and language his mother's. The only thing that is really his is getting high in secret. When that is no longer something he can do, he goes through a literal withdrawal. And he seeks refuge in television. He starts to watch his father's old movies. Infinite Jest was never officially distributed, so that's not included, obviously. But his father's films are all painfully ironic. They are all, they're all have this, they all value cynicism. With no sincerity in his life, Hal become, becomes the thing he's always pretended to be, the same thing his father's films taught him. He becomes empty on the outside, even when he, while he finds himself within. It's very weird, but it's the best I've got so far on this one. <laughs> I know, I think that's, that's poignant. Yeah. Okay, so let's move on to addiction. Addiction is a huge part of the story. As I mentioned, addiction takes a strange form in Infinite Jest. It's more about the ritual of getting high than actually getting high. The second scene in the book follows a minor character as he waits for someone to deliver him a whole bunch of marijuana. As he is waiting and preparing, uh, he is already fantasizing about what it will be like to finally quit. He does this regularly. He'll call off of work for a few days, claiming some sort of -of out-of-town emergency, then buy a ton of weed, smoke all of it in a couple days, then never call the dealer a weed, weed, weed procurer again, throw away all of his weed stuff and punish himself mentally for relapsing again. The whole thing is an elaborate ritual taken to his extreme. Really what he's looking forward to is the act of quitting. So he's like, I'm going to punish myself by, by smoking all of the weed in a couple days. I, I, I know I've ordered more than I've ever ordered in my entire, like I've ever smoked before. I'm just going to smoke all of it right now. And he'll go out and buy a bunch of bongs and pieces and other stuff. And then he will smoke all of it. And then he'll be like, ah, and then that's where that release comes from. He's like, ah, now I'm going to throw all this stuff away. I'm never doing it again. Never doing it again. And then a few weeks later, he does it all again. He does it all again. So... Um, addictions are sometimes conflated with hobbies. And this is a quote from Hal. Uh, would you like to read this, please? It now seems like some kind of black miracle to me that people can actually care deeply about a subject or pursuit and could go on caring about it for years on end to dedicate their entire lives to it. It seemed admirable and at the same time pathetic. We are all dying to give our lives away to something. Maybe. God or Satan, politics or grammar, topology or philately. The object seems incidental to this will to give oneself away utterly, to games or needles, to some other person. Something pathetic about it, a flight from in the form of a plunging into, a flight from exactly what? These rooms blandly filled with excrement and meat. To what purpose? Hal goes on to say that the word for addiction actually comes from the phrase to plunge in. Um, As an obsession can give meaning to life, it can also kill you. There are healthy and unhealthy habits, I suppose. For Hal, giving up one obsession left him with a hole inside himself that consumed him. The escape, according to the book is, again, sincerity, to embrace the real and accept truths, even the obvious ones. Let yourself fall into something, something healthy for you, of course, but do not resist the call to become obsessed or interested or excited. If you do, 
If you do not, something or someone else will. Keeping an ironic detachment only creates the opportunity for something else to take hold, something you cannot control. Which I think, again, plays into this idea of that infinite jest the movie plays, which is, is filling this hole that we all have in ourselves where we have to become obsessed with something. It is the epitome of serendipity in which you find something that you didn't realize you were looking for. Yeah, um, David Foster Wallace talks about this in one of his interviews where he discusses how even if you're not religious, you will perform some sort of worship. Um, you'll, you'll, you'll find it, and he brings up the ritual of doing drugs, but so many other things can fill that kind of space uh, in your existence where, um, you know, if, and especially if you think that you're not doing it, that's when you're most susceptible to, to, to doing it. Sure. I think... Um you know, uh, this book certainly supports that. So I, he's at least consistent between those things. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, the last thing I want to talk about briefly is happiness. What does it really mean to be happy? Really? I don't think this book gives a very good answer. Um, the happiest person in this story is definitely Mario. Mario's inability to be ironic or insincere allows him to perceive the world in a very optimistic way. Even when bad things are happening, he chooses to see the good in them. He is often seen as weak or naive, but he sees clearly and engages directly. Other characters cannot have direct conversations with each other, but Mario listens. There's this thing that happens every time, almost every time a conversation between two characters happens where they switch track constantly. One is talking about one subject, the other one is talking about something else, and they converge slightly sometimes in the middle they will eventually answer the other's questions but they will just constantly talk about their own thing and not listen to what the other person's saying um, it's a really interesting dialogue exercise i think it's probably really difficult to write something like that but it's essentially two mixed monologues that are being like melded together and interchanged um but mario doesn't have this problem at least not uh not usually um and he asks questions that he wants answers to I think that embracing that kind of insincerity is a wonderful message to take away from this miserable book. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. I think that is a good message, especially it's surprising to me, actually, to hear that uh, coming from Infinite Jest, because if you listen to, I mean, the idea of the collection of essays, uh, a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. I mean, the allure and the charm of those essays is that David Foster Wallace is doing something that is widely accepted as fun and basically shitting all over it and finding like all the detailed horrific ways that this normal fun thing is actually, uh, you know, existentially horrific. Mm -hmm. And it, it's like, which again, I enjoy that to a certain extent, but it certainly seems that he's uh, almost too cool for school in those cases uh, where it's like, oh, look at all these dumb people who enjoy being on a boat casino. I, on the other hand, choose to hate it. <laughs> right. Know? Well, that's the thing, I think, is that he certainly has a hierarchy of obsessions, right? He thinks television is one of the worst things that you can become addicted to, uh, probably because he was personally addicted to it um it's so for that matter there must be other things on that list right there's other things in that category stuff that's manufactured to destroy your humanity it'd be it's no longer something that you it's something that you've fallen into because you were unaware and it becomes an addiction um instead of something that you're purposely nurturing uh, something like a uh, sport or writing or something like that you know so it's um it, it, it's clear that some sort of cynicism is necessary in order for you to not fall into those kinds of traps. Um, but it's not clear exactly how to make those distinctions. Sure. And I think there's definitely things that are worth uh, criticizing. I'm 
uh really turned off of the main lobster festival after <laughs> listening to uh oh, i'm sure on, yeah on the lobster actually i i would love to play a little st- a segment from that really quick see for example the aforementioned main eating tent for which there is a constant disneyland grade queue and which turns out to be a square quarter mile of awning shaded cafeteria lines and rows of long institutional tables at which friend and stranger alike sit cheek by jowl, cracking and chewing and dribbling. It's hot, and the sagged roof traps the steam and the smells, which latter are strong and only partly food-related. It is also loud, and a good percentage of the total noise is masticatory. Oh, God. I, I, I <laughs> love it. fucking awful. <laughs> exactly like the way he spells that out. Um, totally contrast with the idea that there are people who look forward to this event and go and celebrate it every year. Um, and he goes on, really, this essay ends up being a uh, not necessarily an argument, but a discussion of the morality of killing and eating lobsters mm. because they're the freshest food around. They're killed right in front of you before you eat them. You literally point at them and like, that one. I want uh, that one. Yeah. And <laughs> um, so I don't know, like, I can enjoy the humor behind like exposing these things for what they are, but at the same time, it kind of flies in the face of this message of sincerity where uh, you could say like, I just enjoy it because it's fun. Um, you know, so I, I don't know. Like again, I'm saying there's there's definitely subjects that are worthy of criticism, um, and the I think the main lobster festival probably is one of those things. But well, it's um, like what's the implication there, right? Because he's conflating like an addiction with an obsession or like a you know something something that you do for fun and um just as like doing drugs is ultimately gonna be harmful to you and then the people around you right something like this engaging in it directly like the like the mat the lobster festival um has this dark like uh, implication and also consequence right and so if you're going to become obsessed with something you should make sure that that thing doesn't have those kind of qualities um, I think is really the lesson we're supposed to take away from that. Sure. Yeah. If I'm being I, very charitable, which no, I sure. feel like I am. I honestly, I don't need for there to be a greater meaning to these particular essays. The way that Dave, I mean, I think that was a pretty good excerpt of <laughs> David Foster Wallace being hilariously uh, descriptive <laughs> right. about what's going on. Cause you could just be like the, you know, the main eating tent, but he builds up to that reveal as well by mentioning the main eating tent uh, in, uh, prior to that. So it's, it's yeah, it's good stuff. No, he's a great writer. Um, Predictions. All right. So this this book makes a number of predictions, some of which I find um, eye rolling, uh, others which I find kind of clever. Uh, so one of them is the end of broadcast television. So uh, this is sort of happening right now. Uh, broadcast television is on its last legs. Um, the way that it happens in Infinite Jest, the book, is that uh, advertisements become ex- extremely visceral. Uh, there's these couple of these uh, companies that put out these advertisements that are so excruciating to watch that the only thing you can do to relieve that like anxiety is to buy their product. One of them that stands out is a um, uh, it's it's a series of portraits, uh, hyper realistic portraits of people in extreme pain. Um, it's just them like. And their faces are contorted um, because something awful is happening to them. And it's just a bunch of these in a row. And uh, it's, it has like the, the pain medicine in the corner and it, it causes this reaction in the people that watch it where they're just like, they're just so horrified by these images that they feel like they need to 
own this medicine so that they can relieve themselves of the pain that these people are seeing are having oh on screen. Oh my gosh. Um, there's another one for liposuction, which I can't remember the details. It's disgusting though. And another one about tongue scrapers, uh, where it, basically they make a market for that your tongue is disgusting and that everyone should get a tongue scraper. Um, and it, it centers on these like really detailed vi- visuals of people's tongues and, and people's visceral reactions to people's tongues that makes them the whole thing really uncomfortable. It makes everyone buy tongue scrapers. Yeah, no, that's 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 a good one because that uh, is reminiscent of the I want to say uh, Listerine or I don't know if it was specifically mm, right, Listerine, yes. but the mouthwash advertising Invented halitosis, campaigns. yes, exactly. So it's uh, yeah, it's not too far removed from reality. So the the effect is that people hate these ads um, because they're awful, and what what happens is that they. Um, uh, the advertisers or the broadcast companies start to suffer because people are clicking away from the their channels as soon as these ads come on. And um, but these ads are also extremely successful, which allows them, which means that the broadcast companies can basically have no choice but to uh, accept their money. Um, they cannot uh, they cannot turn down a deal this good. But it also causes all the other advertisers to flee, which, again, reinforces that they are completely reliant on these awful ones. Um, And this basically comes to a point where everyone decides, you know what, this broadcast TV was a bad idea in the first place. And the whole industry collapses. Um, And all of these these big four companies uh, that are broadcasting on television basically go bankrupt and uh, they all kind of fail. So... Um, and uh, here, I have a quote here that um, about the ads uh, that you can read. It did what all ads were supposed to do, create an anxiety relieved by purchase. It just did it way more well than wisely. Given the vulnerable psyche of an increasingly hygiene-conscious USA in those times. Right. So, again, like uh, this creates a vacuum. Uh, at some point... Uh, one of the broadcast companies only plays Happy Days on repeat forever, which causes a uh, poor Henry, Henry Winkler to get death threat threats, <laughs> which is kind of funny. <laughs> Wait, so, so there's okay, so um, they had real life. Were there any other real life celebrities that um, made an then, appearance in this book? I, oh, Rush Limbaugh was assassinated. Uh, I I had that in my uh, in my quotes. So I didn't uh, write it down because it wasn't. That's relevant. wild. <laughs> <Yeah>. Why? <laughs> I don't know. I was after would... the like. Here's a picture of Russ, Russ Limbaugh, which was put up after the assassination or something. Just oh, okay, I see. Um, um, no, but... I um just speaking on advertisements. I I mean I love this like projection of the future because advertisements really are offensively bad on cable television. It's one of those things where now we have a generation of Zoomers who have never, well, maybe not never, but they've spent a vast majority of their media consumption on things like Netflix, Hulu without ads, uh, you know, Amazon, where they can not watch ads. They can watch hours and hours and hours of content without explicitly being shown ads. Obviously there's native advertising and all this other stuff, but, um, they don't have to sit through three minutes of ads every seven minutes yep. when they're watching their television. So when you switch to that, and I even feel this to a certain degree when I 
am not watching sports because that's the only thing I really watch on broadcast television. But when I go back to watching sports, I'm like, oh, come on, more? Like, my my one I always reach for is like, I have, okay, this actually has changed. I have bought one car in my entire life and I spent $1,000 on it, okay? In my entire life, I'm 25 and I've spent, I've bought one car, but I have watched hours and hours and hours and countless hours of advertisements for cars. It is the most infuriating thing, the amount of time I've spent having cars marketed to me. It, 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 I hate them. I absolutely hate them. Even the quirky local ads where they're, yes. they're kind of funny. It's it, it makes me blood red mad. And um, I, I absolutely understand kind of the sentiment he's going for here with these ads right. that are completely infuriating where um, I, I literally, when I watch television now, like I just watched the NFL draft, I will have something that I want to watch on my laptop and I will mute the television when the ads come on and watch something else because it's, it, I don't see any point in it inflicting myself with that kind of pain. Absolutely. Especially since like the ads just repeat. It's like, they don't want you to watch the same thing for hours. You know what I mean? Like yeah. they watch cause they just drill into you over and over again. The exact same thing, exact same ads over and over again. It's, uh, it's super annoying. Um, but this is kind of a, this takes on a different kind of quality because these ones are just so horrifying that they just stick in your mind. There is a there is an ad that I heard once on the radio that had this quality that I can relate to. It was an ad for mattresses, um, and I'm not going to repeat to you what it said because it was disgusting. But it was basically saying your mattress is absolutely disgusting. You should feel gross laying on it, um, and so buy a new mattress. And every time it came on the radio, I would change the channel immediately. After I, I heard it like once or twice, I'm like, I, I cannot, once I hear this statistic, I cannot get it out of my head. And um, so I'm not going to listen to it again because it's going to ruin my day. So I'd be like driving in the car with my mom and then the, that ad would come on. I would just immediately punch the off button on the radio. And she's like, what's that? It's like, I don't want to listen to that ad. There's no way I'm listening to that ad again. And uh, the exact same uh, thing happens here where these awful ads drive people in droves away from broadcast television. So what happens instead is streaming. Huh? Streaming? David Foster Wallace predicted streaming confirmed. Sort of. Um, so <laughs> there's this... Uh, I'll, he, he predicts Netflix's delivery service. Um, I'll okay. give him that. Which So there's this company called Interlace Tell Entertainment, which sort of rises... Um, like as a competitor to Blockbuster, um, and it has a different kind of uh, uh, medium. They're called these um, interlaced cartridges. Uh, here's a description that Benjamin will read for you. In convenient fiber optic pulses that fit directly on the new palm-sized 4.8 megabyte PC diskettes. And also, um, they, they can be viewed on your PC. Can you read this one too? Viewable right there on your trusty PC's high-resolution monitor, or, if you preferred, or so choose, jackable, into a good old pre-millennial widescreen TV with, at most, a coaxial or two. Right, so this new technology, which is basically just better VHS tapes, um, becomes the dominant technology, and this company, Interlace, uh, makes a deal with the broadcast companies and basically... Oh, takes over the entire industry of like television. Um, and one of the things that they, they talk about is how uh, programming on cable and even through like the airwaves is um, 
curated for you. But really what you want is choice. You want to have, you know, what's the difference between 100 choices and 504 choices, right? Really, someone else is still feeding you that stuff. You really, what you really want is to be able to choose what you watch, what you want to watch, when you want to watch it, which um, is exactly right and exactly why Netflix's uh, business model has been so successful. So, um, people get these things delivered to them, right? And then they put them in and, you know, new ones come out and are distributed through this thing. But that's why Infinite Jest wasn't put on the airwaves necessarily because nobody watches stuff on the airwaves and there's no such thing as broadcast television anymore. Um, okay. Instead, everything is distributed through individual, like these individual diskettes. So, Ad-free? Um, not necessarily. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> but, um, but, like, you know, not quite as... Uh, intrusive necessarily um and so they get this on the, so there's this big pivot basically that happens through there um yeah i think i will i will give him credit i'll give him full marks for predicting netflix's business model and streaming as a successful pivot from television i will not give him credit for how it happens with the introduction of awful ads um, because i don't believe that they would be as effective as uh, he claims they would be, or that they would have the same effect. Um, these broadcast television networks are extremely, they're almost too big to fail at this point. Like they they would be, uh, it would be incredible. Something incredible would have to happen for them to completely collapse because one market, one wing of their business was no longer quite, quite as profitable. So yeah, I don't, I'm not, I'm not giving him much for that one. I don't know, man. After I saw a commercial where a kid asks Santa for a, um, an Audi, I was uh, pretty disgusted, and I didn't want to watch that cable channel anymore. Dude, I think it's I think it's already happening. Okay, <laughs> I don't believe you. Um, <laughs> one other thing he predicts is video calling, which I don't think is impressive because everybody's predicted video calling. Yeah, um, didn't the Jetsons have video calling? Yeah, Star Wars had video calling. Yeah. Well, so. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, yeah, but he does predict Snapchat filters, although not quite in the way you might expect. Um, basically, what he says is that video calling becomes a new technology. Everyone gets on board with it and they, it becomes a new fad. But it has a couple of problems, one of which is that people actually don't want to be seen while they're talking. They prefer to be able to do other things while they're on the phone, which is kind of the like the appeal of the audio thing. Like I can pretend to be listening, but really, you know, I'm doing other things. I'm in my kitchen or whatever. Um, the other thing is people don't like the way they look. So uh, when they see a, a digital version of themselves, they're horrified. So what ha a new market uh, crops up where people can buy masks of themselves that they'll wear that will look like better versions of themselves. And which is basically what a Snapchat filter is. Um, and it will it goes to the point where people stop even wearing masks themselves. They start wearing masks of celebrities and people start selling their images as masks so that people can wear them to be rep avatars of themselves in this space. Um, eventually, he said, the thing I, I dislike about this take is eventually everyone decides that this has all gone too far and it's become too absurd. And now we're just going to all go back to calling each other on the phone instead of using video calling. And vi people who still use video calling are seen as extremely gauche um, and self-obsessed, uh, which in this book that is full of infinite detail and nuance, I think misses a lot of infinite detail and nuance about video calling in which that uh, right now in the age of Corona, uh, second year of coronavirus, it is a uh, 
more obvious the usefulness of video calling than ever. It has many uses. Sometimes I talk on a video, which we're doing right now. Sometimes I talk on the phone, which I do most of the time at work. Sometimes I have video calls at work. Sometimes it's useful to see people's faces or be able to present different things uh, through video. Sometimes, you know, it's not as useful. So, you know, it has its uses. It has its, uh, its moments. Uh, and the idea that everyone decides that it's no longer cool to video call, I think, misses a lot of the point. So, you know what, David Foster Wallace? I'll only give you half credit for Snapchat filters. <laughs> I think they didn't ruin the world. <laughs> well, um, I think it goes beyond Snapchat filters if you just want to apply it to more technologies because one of the things I learned on TikTok, which, by the way, follow Apple Chat on TikTok because we have enough followers that I unlocked live so yeah. I can broadcast live, which is not a feature that all users have. And one of the things you do when you go live is you can augment your face. You can apply filters that will clear your skin up, make your eyes bigger, um, and I want to say, like, make your face less fat. So mm. you can make yourself look completely different. And there's no indication to the viewer that these filters are being applied. They're done in a way that's supposed to look realistic, which horrified me when I looked at it. It's like, <laughs> how many people have I seen on live who are, you know, amping up their attractiveness subtly enough that I had no idea that they're doing it and I just believed that that's who they look like. To me, I was like, this is sad. <laughs> if you think you have to use these, that's very, very sad. It is uh, sad. It, it is sad. But like, and again, that's the thing is like, this doesn't take into account people that like the way they look and take a lot of and take pride in dressing up for things, right? And see this as an entirely new medium in which to express yourself. Um, and like the Snapchat filter thing is like, yeah, like uh, I think it's horrible for people's self-image for them to constantly be told that they don't look good enough and there's another way for things to look better. Um, but like, uh, I don't know, that's kind of always been the case. Like, like that's been a feature of our society that's deeper than just the easiness that you can use snapchat filters you know that's a that's an element of human psychology and sociology that's been an that's been around for a long time if we really want to solve that problem we have to go to the deeper root of it right well and also the thing you brought up with like being able to become another person like with the masks that's definitely uh in the same realm as vtubers where yes you're no longer even streaming as yourself you are literally an avatar that can be augmented in, in, in infinite ways. So, um, I don't know. It's pretty cool. I, uh, he definitely had a little bit of, uh, you know, future sense. Yeah, definitely. All right. So the last thing I want to talk about is word use. And so we've got, we've got through a bunch of different quotes and you've kind of seen a little bit of how, uh, Wallace uses, uh, words. I think, um, I really like the way he uses words in this book. It's really inspiring to me as someone who wants to write things. Um, one of the things he does is just kind of create new words or use uh, words that are, um, he, he uses a new kind of inflection for that word that uses, that kind of uh, creates a new meaning. Uh, he's very descriptive with his adjectives and adverbs. And here's a quote that from uh, Hal's stepfather, CT, um, talking about Hal. Damn right you were watching ballet out there, White. This boy is a balletic athlete. Yeah. Like, have you ever heard the word ball balletic before? Certainly not. Exactly. And here it is in the book, in the very, uh, very opening passage. He also uses the word osteoperiodically to describe uh, J.O. Incandenza's hunched form. Uh, again, like, I know exactly what you mean, but I've never heard anyone say that before. Uh, my favorite one in the in the entire book is they're describing this... this uh, um, this movie that he created called Bad Sister, One Tough Nun, I think, which is about a 
uh, a vigilante nun who goes around killing people. And uh, there's a scene that takes place in a church and there's a crucifix which is taken off the wall. And he describes the wall as cruciformly pale where the unnamed object had hung, uh, which is like, uh, that blew my mind when I heard that cruciformly pale, as in it is missing a crucifix specifically. There's one context in which you can use that, and it is that, that there is something missing from the wall, and that thing is a crucifix. That's amazing. <laughs> Um, the other thing he does is he messes with idioms, which I think is really fun. Um, for example, he describes something as the spinal camel straw instead of the straw that brought, broke the uh, camel's back. Um, and another one is he talks about how uh, you can't unring a bell necessarily, right? Like once you've rung a bell, it can't be unrung. Um, and he says their collective bells unrung, um, implying that they had not quite done the thing that would ring the bell, that it would, you know, be right undoable so it's uh i really like that stuff i think that was a highlight for me uh, was hearing him use new words and that's something that's present in a lot of his essays too um you know it really inspires me to kind of use words more creatively and to uh kind of create new things based on the, the building blocks that we have in the english language um to be extremely specific in your just uh, descriptions, which I think adds a lot to the story. Um, of course, you know, it's built up around a lot of other stuff that's really boring, uh, but it was uh, fun to encounter these, especially coming across stuff where you had never heard it before, but you knew exactly what he meant, which I think is a, a really powerful uh, ability to have as a writer. I um, I agree with you. This was the part where, because I'd heard these interviews about Infinite Jest from, you know, Theo Foster Wallace doing interview tour after the book came out and people always talk about how fun it was to read how addicting it was to read how uh you know David Foster Wallace is this great author because of just how much fun the book is and um while it sounds like there's a, a lot of ways to perceive the book I do agree that his writing style is a lot of fun where he can make something uh, because of his ability to choose words. Uh, just, he can say something so uniquely um, and it's uh, yeah, it makes me want to be more ambitious with my word choice as well. Um, partially with creating new words, but also just having the mastery of uh, the English language as far as using uncommon words. Sure. Uh, it's almost funny to pull out the perfect word at the perfect time when it's not a word that's commonly used. I, I love that. It's, it's, a, it's a very satisfying thing. I think that in the wider context of the book, it has that quality of being fun to read, but within it, it's not, it doesn't it kind of loses some of that because you're so deeply entrenched in David Foster Wallace, right? If you read something and then you go and read a David Foster Wallace essay, it's going to have that fun quality of like, oh, wow, this guy is really playing with the language. But when you're in the middle of a book that's really, you're, that's supposed to be telling you something, it's, it's frustrating because you're like, okay, like we'll get to the point that I'm supposed to get to instead of spending a thousand pages explaining nothing. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it loses some of that quality in the midst of it. Uh, but, you know, coming in for brief moments of it certainly invokes that, I think. That's why I recommend uh, reading those two essays that I brought up, On the Lobster and uh, Pampered to Death, I believe, mm -hmm. is the name of the, uh, the one about the cruise. Maybe not. I think that's actually like a subheading 
for it. It's called, uh, I have it here. Shipping out is what it's called. Cool. But, um, I recommend those because it's way less consequential and it's more of just a brief enjoyment of the writing of David Foster Wallace. He's also, I mean, this is something that's probably not easy to draw a conclusion from infinite chess, but like David Foster Wallace is insanely, uh, uh, he's able to remember everything about an experience that he has when he goes through <laughs> like in, in incredible detail yeah. um, in a way that I, I makes me jealous to have that kind of memory. Like it almost seems like he has to be sitting there writing things down as everything happens, but obviously he's not doing that. So um, he may, it makes him a good reporter uh, in that sense. Definitely. Okay. That that's it. That's all I got. I, the only other thing um, is this, the burning building scene, which is referenced in uh, the end of the tour. I have that quote here if you want to talk about it. But at this point, I feel like I've exhausted myself um, as far as this has gone. Um, so it's all up to you if you want to continue on about this. Well, I I have something I want to uh, engage with okay. for, uh, to wrap this up. Um, so I guess I'll pass on the burning building and I'll play this quote uh, from a documentary I watched about David Foster Wallace. Those of us who write partly as a subject about popular culture are, I think, doing something important, which is that television and popular culture has become so saturated for people our age that we don't notice it's there. We don't notice that much of our experience isn't mediated, but it's got an agenda, right? It's trying to sell us things. That an attempt to, I don't know what you would call it, get behind the scenes, humanize, defamiliarize the experience of a mediated world is, I think, a good and important thing. If nothing else, to slap people kind of unpleasantly across the face and say, there may not be something wrong with six to eight hours of television, but it would be very nice for you to remember that you're essentially being offered a sales pitch and a, and a seduction six to eight hours a day. If we forget that, then for some reason, just intuitively, I think we're in huge trouble. At a time in the U.S., I think when it's very hard to find and commit to things that you think are important or good, at least for me, in some elements of fiction, it seems to me it's a rather high-minded agenda to try to wake people up to the fact that our experience is weird now. <laughs> There's something weird and thrice removed from the real world about it, and a lot of us don't realize it. What's at stake is, in many ways, human agency about how we experience the world. Would I rather go muck around in the hot sun by the seashore or watch a marvelously put-together documentary about the death of egrets? But by the time I go to the goddamn seashore and have seen the egrets, I have already experienced the smooth documentary so many times that it becomes quickly incoherent to talk about an extra mediated or an extra televisual reality. Now, that fact in and of itself is frightening. And it's that kind of almost just sort of shooting flare into the sky and inviting people to say how weird that is. I can go to the ocean that I've never seen before, but I've spent a thousand hours. I mean, it's who would want to live when you can watch? I found this really compelling. Um, for two reasons. First, because he kind of transcends media consumption in, in like analysis to say like, how weird is it that we watch stuff? Like, I think that's a really compelling thing to think about where you're like, yeah, we need to keep in mind that it is weird that we spend so much time staring at moving images on screens. Like it, it's so normal. Uh, but I think it is important to keep that at least somewhere in your mind that this is kind of weird and understand what you're doing when you do that. But even like the first half of that quote, I think, uh, is something that obviously I think the two of us can relate to, which is, you know, engaging with media analysis, understanding what you're watching and not just watching it, uh, which is exactly what we do on this podcast. I have brought this up a lot 
throughout our time doing this podcast. We've been doing this for a long time, but I genuinely felt like I, I felt like I woke up in a certain capacity um, when I started doing media analysis, because before I would plop down in front of the television screen and, and almost turn off uh, and just enjoy the experience, but gain little from it. Most of the time, it was just a way to burn time. And uh, I, I really enjoy now being able to just like, you know, tear things apart and understand what's going on. And media consumption, I feel like, comes becomes more productive in that sense. And I feel like it's more responsible because I'm willing, I'm able now, I feel more able to parse out uh, media that's harmful or uh, problematic or, or in something I shouldn't watch or don't want other people to watch. Yeah, I think um, media literacy is an extremely important skill to develop, especially with, for young people, uh, because you need to be able to discern um, things and and have that distance that he talks about where you realize what the purpose of this thing is and, and many times that purpose is to sell you something um, I also feel like I am at a point or like I feel like I am beyond the point of no return as far as my own experience being completely influenced by the stuff I consume um, like I am my understanding of the world is largely due to my media consumption not just like the news and stuff but my stuff i read when i was younger fiction i enjoy um you know non i choose to read and, and stuff like that all all of that influences the way i see the world in such a fundamental way that it becomes my reality it's a society the spectacle all over again right, right. we're we're distancing ourselves from reality and taking in images that represent reality instead and I don't think that's necessarily the worst thing ever. I just think you have to be aware that you may not have a really good grasp of what, what's actually real. Um, and it's a reminder for you to that there are other experiences other than just, um, you know, consuming and uh, and watching things. I can't wait to get back out there and have them fully vaxxed and go back to doing that part of it. It feels like this yes. last year has just been one giant media consumption <laughs> marathon session. Sure. So. I, I mean, that's the thing is like, I, I don't, I, it's such a part of human life now that like saying that it is, um, saying that it's not something you can do is, uh, it's just not reasonable. Right. It, it's, yeah. it's a, a part of being human is, uh, is watching things. And like, I, I don't know. Um, I feel like for the most part, I've gotten good, I have a good experience with that, you know, and by being the kind of person that wants to engage with that more fully, I get a lot more out of it. It's not just that I am discerning about what I'm watching. I'm also, um, I'm also mining it for greater meaning, you know, which is what my goal was for this book. And I feel like I only really scratched the surface. Well, you can definitely say that you've read it, which is uh, comes with a lot of clout and also a lot of negative perceptions. I don't I really, like. I don't, I don't want it. <laughs> I really don't. <laughs> well, uh, do you have a rating for Infinite Jest, Joy? Uh, no, I didn't think of a rating. No, that's <laughs> I mean, fine. I, <laughs> yeah, I think I, I said. Uh, I think you know how I feel. I don't think I can sum it up any better than I already have. Well, I certainly don't feel like I missed out on reading it. I would rather listen to David Foster Wallace and then read his shorter works. Uh, then, then I think this is going to do it. I, I think I can say confidently I'll probably never read Infinite Good. Jest. Good. That was my goal. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, but I, it, I was interesting engaging with it. I definitely, I was curious about this book and I think yeah. I learned a lot today. There was this, uh, girl on YouTube that I watched, this woman on YouTube I watched who, um, did a review of it, a short one, like about 20 minutes or so. And she said in her review, I am, I was not happy reading it, but I'm glad that I have read it. And I feel a similar way. Um, okay. once it was over, I almost had a nostalgic feeling for it of like, Oh, like, you know, what was that like? What was it? What was it in there? But while I was in it, I just wanted it to be over. I really was not, I was not having a good time. That, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's fair. Okay. So that's going to wrap it up on infinite jest. Um, yeah, like I said, I'm glad we did this. Um, and it's now it's behind us. Now we can move on to <laughs> other things. Yeah. yeah take it off the checklist. <laughs> Finally get out of my brain. Uh, Joey, what's next on Apple chat? Next, we're going to do not a movie. Again, we're going to do Invincible, the show on Amazon. Yes, the uh, the first season of Invincible. If you haven't seen it yet, you got to see it. And then you can listen to us talk about it because it's, yeah, I can't wait. <laughs> you can subscribe to us on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And wherever you listen to us, leave us a review. It really does help us grow. You can reach us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at AffableChat or send us an email, affablechat at gmail.com. We also have a uh, YouTube channel. That YouTube channel is called Affable Chat, where there are things, uh, videos on there, I assume. <laughs> That's, uh, yeah, that's what they've got on that website. It's actually yeah. number one for videos. That, really? Uh, yeah. Huh. <laughs> and uh, you can uh, watch Affable Chat live on Tuesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern time on Twitch. That's twitch.tv slash affable chat. That's going to do it for our episode on Infinite Jest. For Affable Chat, I'm Benjamin. And I'm Joey. Thanks for listening.